0: Everybody, It is time for Apollos Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we have a deep conversation. Deep Conversations. Our world is moving so fast, and we are so distracted. We're continually taking in sound bites left and right. It seems that we're force-fed news we always don't want to hear, and we don't know what to do with it. We're overwhelmed, and we just want to be like an ostrich, bury our head in the sand, and hope the world goes away. But it doesn't. Instead, we have to be able to engage, to learn, to reflect. And while our world is so busy pushing us to do this or that or fill our world with busyness, we need to pause and reflect, think, ponder, let the truth of who Christ is seep in, and also learn what it means to be a Christian in the middle of this fallen and chaotic world. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? Let's get beyond the political labels. Let's get beyond what our media says, and let's explore the depths of what the Word of God has for us. And when the Word of God doesn't say something explicitly, then we need to be able to take the principles therein, apply it to our lives, and learn from those Christians who have gone before us in their journeys and learned what it means to follow Jesus in the middle of an ever-changing and troubled society. And today on our show, we're continuing our conversation with Carl K.J. Johnson. If you haven't listened to the first part of our conversation, I would recommend going back and listening to that. And if you don't know who Carl is, he is the director of the C.S. Lewis Institute. K.J. grew up in Chicago, attended the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, and he served 20 years active duty in the United States Marine Corps as an assault support helicopter pilot and weapons and tactics instructor. He's a veteran of numerous deployments to include Operations Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan and multiple humanitarian assistance missions, most notably Operation Unified Assistance to the 2004 tsunami, where he served as air mission commander for former presidents George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton. He retired as a lieutenant colonel in 2012 and returned to Chicago to attend Trinity Evangelical divinity school. He holds three master's degrees, one in military studies, one in philosophy of religion, and another in systematic theology. He and his wife, Nydia, live in Chicago and have two grown daughters. He oversees programs that foster discipleship of heart and mind for CSLI, the CS Lewis Fellows Program. KJ's focus and passion is discipleship, apologetics, which means defending the faith, and leadership. His desire is to see believers better understand the call to discipleship, to seek the mind of Christ, and to live out their faith. And I would encourage you to listen into our conversation as we discuss even further what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the middle of this fallen and very political world. Happy listening. Okay. So uh taking this in a slightly different tactic cuz we're talking about discipleship and we're seeing our nation becoming increasingly diverse. I mean it's it's diverse. We've it, we've all seen the headlines. We've seen a lot of the different racial tensions. We've seen mm. A lot of uh, confusion and division, even within the evangelical body, on how to, to talk about a lot of these issues. And what I don't think, though, many people realize is that most evangelicals worldwide are not in the United States, and they are not white evangelicals. Evangelicalism is so much bigger than just the United States but we're talking about discipleship and and I I was uh, confronted with a someone told me about a podcast where they had two american evangelicals and two british evangelicals and they were going back and forth and talking about discipleship they're talking about culture but one of the things the british guy said is in america you guys have at least political power and we don't and that changes ways of how you go about discipleship i mean do you think that's true or do you not think that's true and How do we view discipleship differently as our culture is going to inevitably change? Um, How how do we do that? Because for many of us, we're trying to hold on to the political idea. Yes, we want to do good through politics, and yet we're frustrated. But when do we say we're in Babylon? and, And I'm not just talking about America. I'm just talking about this fallen world in which we live that is hostile to the gospel and when w- how do we disciple between those two things and these constant tensions that we see going on today you got any thoughts on that
1: oh yeah we got another hour <laughs> yeah we do we can divide this up so we're all good <laughs> um wow that's a i think that's a very poignant observation um and i think it yeah it's not unique to to the united states but i do think uh we do have uh, maybe an acute form of it right now um I like something David French had said, and right there, you know, maybe half the audience will write me off for, you know, naming some of them. Well, if he, they, know who, po- <laughs> if they <even laughs> if know who he is, they even know who he is. Yes. He made a comment that we have confused religious influence with religious power, and um, I what think do you, that does- What do you does- mean by that? Uh, I'll unpack it. Uh, I think okay. that has driven a lot of our posture right now, and- we are losing religious, or uh, I'm sorry, not religious power, religious freedoms, confusing religious influence with religious freedoms. And uh, we are losing influence because the culture is becoming more secular. We do live in a pluralistic nation. Uh, by design, I might add, e pluribus unum, uh, which yeah. means there is no compulsion in religion and you are free to worship or not worship according to your conscience and conviction. Um, but we are entering in an era where we have so many non-Christians and so our influence is waning and I, I'm seeing a posture being taken up by some American Christians that that's a, an infringement on religious freedoms. Uh, when we rally, we really haven't lost any, you know, with save for some challenges here, or there, we haven't lost that. And so in that case, I think that puts us in a bit of a, a defensive mode and it affects our discipleship. And I think, um, we have been sort of a hegemonic force because this has been a predominantly, um, Christianized nation, um, because the, the sort of the default setting has been Protestant Christianity in the United States for so long that we're used to making, um, cultural references. I remember, you know, growing up you know, and I think you're about the same age as me growing up, even if you weren't a Christian, you probably went to Sunday school at some point in your life. We're now post-Christian and we don't see that at all. Um. So I think that has affected our discipleship, at least for white evangelicals, in in a bit um, that there's a bit of a defensive posture that we we've taken um, because we are we're used to culture being one way, and I I think that has uh, led a little bit to a fortress mentality at times to um, the way we reach out to other people, and so I think sometimes there are swaths of Christian Christians who are not reaching out or have a have trouble reaching out because of either political differences, cultural differences, and they're focusing, they're taking the eye off the ball is what I, I guess I'm trying to say here. They're focusing on on uh, the less, the, the emphasis is on the wrong syllable, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. No, I agree. It's just, what is the solution as we're going on? Because I'm seeing such a shift that's going on politically right now. And I, I'm amazed at just the vitriol that I see online, and people are in black and white. There, There is no gray. Um, there is no difference. And people yeah. force you into one category or another. But I keep thinking to myself, and I've talked to some others about this, when do we really realize that we are in Babylon? I mean, just like Daniel was obviously in ba- Babylon, and Daniel, I mean, he's forced to go there. He's forced to adopt a pagan name. He's forced to go to a pagan seminary. He's forced to learn pagan history. He's forced mm-hmm. to I mean, to be castrated in essence. And how do we, uh, but yet he succeeded in propagating his faith. And I think that with us, I, I, I think that our discipleship is shifting. And in many ways, I think from a, I hate to say a political, but more of a social standpoint, because of the close alignment that many have had with certain aspects of certain political parties, it's caused other people to be you know, person non grata. You're you're not allowed to even be in the conversation anymore because you've supported such and such a a politician. I mean, how do we go about discipleship in a culture like that, where we already feel and many many have said they feel marginalized, they feel lost. They they may not agree, and, and of course in America it's about Trump. And then they stop. They say, I don't like Trump, but yet I've liked a lot of his policies that he's done. I just wish he would shut up and stop tweeting. And how do we Christians do that? I mean, what's, what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, well, okay. So you, I, you probably tell my previous answer. I was dancing there a little bit because I'm trying not to cut anybody's nose off, so to speak, but I'm Got glad it. you went there. It's, it is these, it is some of these political alignments that are causing, that are obstacles to us living out our faith far too often. We are, interpreting our theology through our, through our politics rather than the other way around, despite the fact that we keep saying the contrary. And I understand why people may have voted the way they did. And I'm talking in this case in both directions. I can understand why people felt compelled to vote for Trump and why people felt compelled not to vote for Trump. And I don't think we should violate our conscience in those regards. But I do think we have to see, I think you said it right, we are exiles and we should not be too at home in either party, and it's too easy to cast stones and vilify the other and I think one of the implications or one of the the downstream effects of this to our discipleship is that we are looking at too many too many others as the other, and this idea of loving our neighbor is we're starting to draw uh lines that are a little too thick and I've had a number of dialogues with people, and I talk with people on both sides of the spectrum, and the you're right, there's anger, there's vitriol. I listened to one person saying things like, well, we've got to eradicate this ideology. It's like, well, how are you going to eradicate that? That sounds a little bit harsh, don't you think? Obviously, combat it, Try to try to make its influence wane, but you're never going to eradicate these things, not on this side of glory, but we're getting far too absolutist and far too You know, it's the great separation. You know, the 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 great sort that's happening. You know, across the United States, where people are starting to live in enclaves and live in echo chambers. And um, there's also, you know, in growing talk of things like martial law and secession and all that. I mean, I've heard one term thrown out there is the great divorce. Can we can we live live as two separate Americas? And that is dividing the church right down the middle. And so I know with our community. One of the prayers I've been putting forth with our fellows is pray that politics and division uh, and, and polarization and race and all of these issues don't divide the church.
0: And, and I'm talking to another pastor friend of mine, um, he said, that's what's going on right now. He said, I, I'm seeing these issues just divide people across the lines. And, and in some ways, those battle lines or the battlefield is, is areas that you would not think to be a battlefield, like masks. Um, where the lines are being drawn for this small little fabric because it's more of a political connotation than anything else. But stepping aside from that for a moment, if if I may, how do we then disciple and follow Jesus and keep our eye on him? Like you said, keep our eye on the ball. Because we are in a political world. We're in a a social media world where everyone shares their politics online. And it's almost like just throwing grenades. They take their hired gun that says their their certain opinion and they just cast it online, throw it up in the air and let the pieces fall where they may. And I try to discourage people from doing that. Not that I don't want people to talk about these issues, but let's focus more on the person of Christ and let's talk more about him and try to get people to him. But I, I find that people don't live there. It's almost as if this is the battleground Jesus, yes, Jesus, but Jesus has taken me in this direction and I need to stand in this way politically because Jesus wants me to stand this way politically. How do we call him back from the edge or the ledge, if you will, to call him yeah. back into this 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 discipleship? Because yes, like you said before, and I, I think this is true, whenever we're talking about mature disciples, you know, I think to Hebrews where it says it's through the constant distinguishing between the good and the bad that you've really, you've developed your, your, I want to say observational power. That's not the right term, but you're, you're developing your sense of what's right and wrong through continually wrestling and putting your faith on life through the lens of scripture. And how do we do that and help people do that today? Because really, we're not saying one political party or another. Because there, obviously, there are points on both sides, and yet there are things that are completely on one side or the other that are anti-biblical, yeah. um, and anti-life. And and how do we respond to that in the middle of this? And how do we walk that line of discipleship without falling off the cliff of politics?
1: <laughs> well, if I had a wholly sufficient answer, I probably would have written a book by now and made money. <laughs> um, I think. Uh, I think isn't we, that the
0: truth?
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, well, there's a number of things. I mean, one, generally here in America, we uh, we are a bit myopic, and I'm I'm not saying this singularly about the church. We're such a big country, and there is so much that's going on here. You can focus solely on the news in America and not know what the heck else is going on in the in the world. Well, and most people I know that, that
0: is true for most
1: people, isn't it? yes it is i mean now with with internet and uh the way we do news, I think there's a little bit more coming in from the outside, but usually it has still what to do with America in the middle east america in and Russia or something like that uh And when I moved to in nineteen ninety six I moved overseas with my very young family and lived in uh, Okinawa, Japan for four and a half years and it was eye opening to watch other news um so I think in one sense we need to with with the church try to expand our 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 horizons a little bit to see that there's more than what's going on. I mean, I saw one uh I won't name him but one theologian from a a well-known Christian school had put out on Twitter said, you know, if the current events here in the United States are causing you to break out end times charts and, you know, get into doomsday mode and for the past 10 years the wars and the famines and all of the other things going on in the rest of the world haven't, you might be a bit myopic in your theology. Um, We tend Mm. to, you know, get a little bit of chicken little, the sky is falling because, you know, uh, you know, pick your flavor of, you know, politician, this guy won, this guy lost, whatever. Now America's doomed. And how many times have we heard that America, you know, if this guy wins, America's over. Come on, stop, stop with the hyperbole. So if we can get people to see beyond the borders of the United States a little bit, and then also rejoin, like you said, what are the majority of evangelicals in the world? They're not white. Let's rejoin the global church a little bit, and let's mm-hmm. see what God has done throughout history and what he's doing even now around the world, the church in China. I mean, to to your point earlier about the that, that discussion between the theologians, you know, something I've always said is Christians don't always wield power that well. We don't, I mean, Rome didn't hang around that much longer after they took power. But we don't need political influence to thrive as the church. Now, that doesn't mean we should give it up, but the church is thriving in China. They're, you know, It's going on in Iran. Let's take a look at what's going around the world. I mean, Muslims are having dreams.
0: Yeah. You know, I think I don't think people realize. Like, I there was a study that was done. um, I think there was a book that came as a result of it called Souls in Transition. And it was Mm -hmm. done as a uh, study of um, American youth over a, a, a certain period of time. I mean, it was over a couple of decades. And they didn't talk about the survey being in religion, but that's what it ultimately was about. And one of the things that they noted at the end of it was what made what were the factors that influenced whether a young person who grew up within the faith of Christianity stayed in the faith of Christianity. And it was fascinating when they got down to it. They said one of the first factors was that the person's parent modeled the faith in the home that they proclaimed via their mouth. I mean, they're talking their walk matched. That was one of the first factors. One of the second factors that I really found fascinating was that they were, they suffered. If that youth suffered for their faith, they were more likely to stay in the faith because of it. Now that seems counterintuitive as a parent. You want to protect them. You don't want the world to get into them. But yet, it's through that very vehicle of suffering that their faith is solidified. And then the, one of the third factors was that another adult outside of the family reaffirmed what the parent said, and they kind of took a vested interest in that kid. But uh, there were several other things that played out. It's an excellent book called Souls in Transition, but. One of the things that I, I see, and I think a lot of the people forget, is that it's through the blood of the martyrs is, you know, the seed of the church. It's through our suffering that we're purified, that we're made more like Jesus. And I think we have an allergy to suffering. I mean, it's like peanuts,
1: you know, <laughs> you take oh, a peanut we, and we, it blows up. That, amen to that. And th- that was the point of, of those three points that really resonated with me, because we see this on a microcosm in our program. So the CSO is fellows program, one year program, right? The more I studied this program under my mentor, who's the guy who designed it um, it is more thoroughly biblical. The more I get into it and the application process itself is designed to force you to count the cost and make a commitment. And at the beginning of the program, you sign a covenant. And in that covenant is that you're going to do everything in the program because you enter into a covenantal relationship, not only with us, the Institute, but with one another. And part of it is we make it a a high enough commitment that it's going to involve sacrifice. That's the other part: suffering and sacrifice. Sometimes we'll suffer if we think the payoff is there, but we're not always willing to sacrifice certain things. And I think those two are are closely related. There's a a, a, not exactly the same, but they're bound. And one of the problems many times people have in our program is we live in what I call a culture of casual commitment, and Mm. we're far too comfortable. And making the small sacrifice of, well, I'm not going to be binge-watching as much Netflix this month because I've got to read this book and those sorts of things. And so this is just a small drop in the bucket of what you're describing, but we become so comfortable, and it goes back to why in your accountability question, why I purposely said it's inconvenient. We don't like to be inconvenienced. And, you know, I used to read that story of the Good Samaritan and think about those religious guys walking by the guy in the road, going, what a bunch of, but the more I think about it, that's me. I don't want to stop and I don't want to be inconvenienced. How many times have I really stopped for that guy in the street? I gave him a dollar to keep walking, just so I didn't have to be stopped in my own schedule and convenience. How many times have I stopped to actually talk to him? And I've tried to humanize those interactions more and more, um, but we don't like the loss of comfort. We don't want to suffer, and our levels of suffering are small and minute and, and minuscule compared mm-hmm. to what we see in the rest of the world. Our suffering is, my schedule got thrown off today and I missed an appointment. I missed the bus.
0: You, you know, at our church, because we had so many different people from different parts of the world, we had one young man who had been a lawyer in uh, Congo, and he's sharing his story with me, and he had written, uh, along with two other lawyers, an article And it was uh, calling out the injustice of the abuse of the diamond mine workers that were children. And some of the government didn't like that very much. So they had one of them executed. They found him and executed him. The other guy fled for his life and had to go to the country. Well, my friend was captured. Mm. And he was tortured for three days. And then at the end of three days, the guy that was in charge had everybody leave the room. And he gets right down by his ear and he whispers, you know, and this guy thinks I'm going to die. And he's like, this guy whispers to me, do you remember big brother, Joel? And he stops and goes, wait, what? He looks up and he realizes that the guy who was in charge of his execution had been his college sweetmate, mate. And he had lost track of him over the years and he looked different. And the guy goes, I have a car ready for you outside. And he goes, but you have to go now and you can never come back. And, and I, <laughs> you, you see that and you're like, wait, what? Like, how does that that's so. That flies in the face. Any type of suffering like that seems so outside of the normal experience of our VeggieTales suburbia. Yeah, and but yet I look at the Bible and I go, the Bible's not VeggieTales. Um, the the Bible is is not G rated. The Bible is filled with real life and pain and there's abuse, there's murder, there's incest, there's adultery, there's there's violence, there's lying, there's I mean, but yet it's it's very real to our existence. Why do we speaking of discipleship, why do you think we feel like we've had to neuter the word of God and what it means to a disciple to make it safe for the whole family? And again, let me say that in context because I understand I have young children. You don't want to introduce all of the different violence of life to them all the time. But yet part of being a parent is introducing them to the real world and how things are going on. Um, why do you feel like, though, we have had to neuter things so much and we have to just well, bring and, it down and simplify it so much?
1: Well, and let's be honest. They're getting that stuff now anyways with some of their video games mm-hmm. done. You know you can watch some, all these movies. I mean – There's even stuff in these, you know, we talked about Marvel movies at the beginning. There's even stuff in Marvel movies that are, you know, can be a bit brutal, you know, Uh, you know, spoiler alert, Black Widow dies. (laughs) Okay. That's rough. You have to deal with death of these beloved characters. Um, She dies? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I couldn't help myself.
0: (laughs) I couldn't help myself. I had to do it.
1: Anyways, um, <laughs> oh, you're through, you just threw my train of thought off. Um, but you know one of, the, uh, one of the other things about these kind, you know, obviously, we, we don't go out and seek this kind of suffering. it comes to us. But one of the byproducts of this kind of suffering and these experiences that we go together as a church is it builds the community. You know, think back to your own history, whether you were on a high school football team or some, you know, something like that, where you went through some experience, if you went on a teen missions trip, those experiences that you go through those hardships bond you to closer together mm-hmm. and even if you didn't do it with me if you did a teen challenge mission one year to Guatemala you know and I went on the same trip the next year and then you heard I did it there's an instant bond oh you did it the oh I did the year prior did you guys go here did you do that and there's something about that and I think we need more of that in our church today and so that's what we you know I, I like to say, the guys in our fellows programs, they grow really closely together because it's a year of sacrifice. I go back to my time in the Marine Corps, the people I went through officers candidate school, which is boot camp for officers. You know, those guys I've got a lifelong bond with. We need more of those experience, whether it's downright suffering or just hardships and inconvenience.
0: You know, I talked to a, I, I mean, just to continue that train of thought, I talked to a guy who was the president of a fraternity when he was in college, and and he he. I, I asked him. I said when he was telling me about what he had to go through through his initiation, and I thought well, that's horrific. And 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 then he told me he became the president of the fraternity, and I said, "Did you do the same thing to the very you know the new people coming in?" He goes, "Of course I did. Yes, you <laughs> and, did." And he said, "It's because you know it brought that." camaraderie it brought that that sense of being and i'm not saying that we try to recreate hazing in the church or or that type of initiation
1: what to get in what are you saying travis is this <laughs> is this apollo's water thing involve waterboarding
0: no, it does not in any <laughs> I'm way. I'm on <onto> you. <laughs> so, so, but we're talking about discipleship and it is interesting to me that you mentioned that suffering. How though do we get that in a culture today? And this is, I guess, where we're we're, we're figuring out all the problems within the Christian world right now, KJ, because I'm looking at this going, all right, how do we then solve some of these issues? Because we're distracted. We have so many things competing for our time. And I know that talking with many uh, like you were talking about before, when you travel, that's the sheer that that cures you of a lot of your cultural issues and your blind spots. It it, it really the uh, I was talking with uh, Jackson Wu on the show, and he mentions when we learn about different cultures, it increases our cultural mirrors. And he said, if you ever see a truck and they add those bigger mirrors on the side of it so they can see further behind. When we interca- interact with different cultures, it really, though, changes our viewpoint and helps us to see that our culture is not everything in the world, that there's a lot that our culture misses. And yet I see that we're distracted. I see that it's becoming epidemic, not just in the United States and in the West, but even in other cultures. When I travel to Uganda or Liberia or different parts of Africa, you're seeing more and more people with cell phones and they have they could live in a hut. And not joking, i I, I hiked up a, a mountain in Uganda to go visit a family who lived in a hut, and they have their little solar uh, power panel out there, and it's plugged in to their cell phone. <laughs> so I've sit there going, "This is not just an issue in the United States and in the West. This is across the board that we are a distracted culture, and yet we're called to make disciples, and pastors are trying to make these these calls. How do I get them in the door? And how do I compete when they are? They have another million things. I mean, even with COVID, I talked to a lot of churches that were suffering because people were saying, "I don't need to tune into so and so church. I can tune into this pastor now." Mm-hmm. How do how do we how do we counteract that, or what do we do
1: in response to that? Uh, there's no, well, there's a lot there. Um, you know what comes to mind of, and I don't know the way to go forward in doing this but one of the things i think we need to recapture especially with that i, I can go i can go podcast john piper tim keller john MacArthur, whoever your guy is yeah. um apollos watered Ap- apollos watered yeah sorry yeah that was a that was a given Well, it's because i'm assuming that because you're listening to this right now um you started here as your plumb line you can only Um, go
0: up you can only (laughs) go up from here brother
1: (laughs) oh my goodness um Uh. it's too bad you're no fun um (laughs) (laughs) oh that's um, good but one of the things that those people including apollos watered is can't be there in person sit with you when your mother has died uh your child gets diagnosed with cancer and um I think we talked about this once before as we were getting to know each other. Uh, that You know Lyle Dorsett, old Wheaton mm-hmm. College prof? Yeah. Uh, who's Who, well, just Beeson. retired, but from Beeson.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I sat down with him one day over lunch. We were sitting in downtown Wheaton. He was in town for a conference we were doing. And I was lamenting some of these sorts of things. And, you know, he's got that old grov, gravelly voice. And he just said, KJ, we've stopped being shepherds. And I'm like, oh, that's so true. We mm-hmm. need to recap and that, that's what these podcast folks cannot do. Um, we, they can't shepherd you. You're right. And we You're need right. to recapture that element, uh, that component of the pastor as shepherd. And I, I'll be honest, uh, my time in the Marine Corps, like I haven't been honest up till this point. I hate people who say that. I just did it. Um, I in my 20 years in the Marine Corps, I moved around and I did the math at one point. I think it was like 14 churches I'd been a part of because I just kept moving. And so I, um, I got to be in, in all shapes, sizes, and flavors. And, uh, I remember we went, when we lived in Northern Virginia and this is while I was in the discipleship program. And I think this is one of those moments where God was instructing me is we, we ended up settling on a church. Cause we, by this time, we learned a church shop and do it fast because I was like, we're not here that long. We got to get plugged in and get settled. So we can't spend a year searching. Um, and we settled in a church where the preacher, his preaching was mediocre. If you want to go and put it on a scale. But the community there was one of the most vibrant, loving communities I've ever seen. I wish I could replicate it in churches across the United States. And that really, that really set a tone for me. And I remember telling my wife going, you know, from here on out, You know, I'll take that all day long. I'll take a guy who's a mediocre preacher, but that he is there for you, that he will be at your house at midnight if you need him. And the community is a part of that as well, because we had a a, a number of situations in that church that just got really crazy. And the way the church came around, the hurting people was amazing. I'll take that all day long. And I think that makes up for any deficiency in the guy's preaching, you know, and in this case, we're talking style points.
0: No, no, I, I agree. And and that was one of the fortunate things. God allowed me to be a part of a church where the leadership was all about shepherding. And I'd never been in a church that was quite like that. I mean, we knew about shepherding, but these guys were shepherds de jour. I mean, I, I've seen them sacrifice. I'd seen them, they would be there for people constantly checking in and wanting to make sure people were okay. And you don't see that too much anymore. And this church would would get into the mega church. I mean, it's a multi-site now, and there's probably around sixteen hundred people that go. But yet, they still break it down where people are. Try, you know, they're trying to help you shepherd the the people that are there. And it, but you don't see that emphasis that much anymore. I mean, you do with some of the older people in the smaller churches where they had the pastor that was there doing the hospital visits. But yet, I know. One church that I'd talked to uh, a while back where they have a shepherding team, but it's separate from the pastoral staff and I thought, well, what then is the pastoral staff doing mm-hmm. uh, I, i'm I'm you know they want you to be much more specialized in and in our increasingly uh internet community you're even seeing now internet pastors and I thought, well, how do you shepherd online? I mean yes, you can there is something about being in someone's presence, and it's different than zoom you know I think of second John where John writes, I've written to you enough in paper and ink, and I long you see, to see you face to face. And he's not talking about Zoom or FaceTime. Um, <laughs> he's talking about being there in a corporal sense. And yes, I know people are trying to do the best that they can with what they have right now. And I want to give grace to that in so many ways. But I do think that we need to get back to shepherding people. And it is hard, though. How do you, Which people do you shepherd? Um, because we have new people coming in all the time. They want to, many want to remain anonymous and yeah. you, you, you have to be very careful in how you shepherd, when you shepherd, how you enter into that relationship and what is that shepherding relationship like? But what's the difference? Uh, let me ask you this. What's the difference between shepherding and discipleship?
1: Um, well, I think it's, a, it would be a component and it's a unique component of, uh, of discipleship for those in those positions, particularly pastors, but I don't think it has to be only pastors. Um, mm. I think that's a it, it's a form of mentorship, and I think these these dilemmas you're describing it requires you to know your sheep. You know, my sheep know my name. You know, you you can't and and okay, the new person who walks in, it takes you a while to get to know him, but you've got to be invested in getting to know them. And okay, even a a 500 person church, maybe the lead pastor isn't going to be able to directly shepherd everyone, but there's that got to be a system by mm-hmm. which there's shepherding going on. So, you know, if I'm a head pastor, then I'm should be I should be shepherding my staff of pastors as well as um my elders or deacons or whatever the polity is in that church and equipping them to do the same in sort of a almost a pyramid scheme. And you know, there should be some setup this, there. Did you just where, call a discipleship a pyramid scheme? I just figured it was the easiest <laughs> point of reference. The other one, That's which I've learned is- The illustration you could <laughs> Well, uh, the one I used to use, but oh. I've gotten blank looks, is that old, you know, uh, shampoo commercial. They made two friends and so on and so on. And I get these people going, no, never saw that. Uh, so
0: i don't know but, what you're talking about
1: <laughs> see i dated myself right there but where you have
0: tvs were black and white is that
1: oh <laughs> uh, stop it <laughs> you're breaking no, up what kidding.
0: Um, i'm kidding i'm kidding go back go yeah back. i know
1: um but this goes to you know uh, we can all be we can all be reaching a certain amount of people we don't ha- you can't take on 20 people to be in their lives. It's messy, but you can be in the lives of two or three others and you can then equip them to do that with others. And that's part of, that should be part of our leadership training. That should be what we're doing. I don't necessarily need another executive. This is one of the problems of what you talked about before, about a lot of people going in the pastor directly out of business without any seminary. And I don't think seminary is the be all end all all the time, but you can also get to business and too corporate. And I, I'm, I think I'm seeing that, well, not I don't think, I know I'm seeing that in a number of, of large churches where they're running it like a business and you have models of efficiency and things like that, but you're losing so much. Um, we have to equip our people to be able to shepherd con, uh, and disciple the saints. So it can't all be on the, sta- on the, on the, on the shoulders of the church staff. And this is, uh, you know, I'll go back to Greg Ogden. Greg Ogden has a great book called Unfinished Business, Returning the Ministry to the People of God. There's a sense in which you as pastors, you're sort of the coaching staff, and we're the players. We ought to be out there doing the ministry. And too often, Mm. we've turned it into a spectator sport. We show up, it's a stadium, and you guys are putting on a show.
0: Mm. And so we we don't participate.
1: It's got to be more participatory. And I'm not just talking like liturgical kind of stuff in, in the Sunday. I'm talking in the ministry of running the church, running the life, being in the community. I mean. You could be the best pastor in the world. Tim Keller can't reach Manhattan by himself.
0: Mm-mm. No, no one, no one can. I mean, he, Jesus had 12 disciples. I mean, uh, and, uh, how different are we going to be if if that's what he was doing? And he's God incarnate. Um, what do you think the church is going to look like post COVID?
1: Well, it's not going to look like a pyramid scheme. That's for sure. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that's a good question. I think I think you touched on it. I think this idea of getting small, um, I can't remember where I read it, but there was one megachurch pastor saying, getting bigger is not necessarily the answer. Um, We're all looking to get smaller, even without giving up the size of the megachurch. There's one large church in Chicago that during this COVID time created an initiative called Scattered but Gathered. And they were encouraging folks. One of the things they said was, you know, The church hasn't closed just because we're not meeting on Sundays. We're still doing church. They've encouraged folks in safe numbers, you know, and it's all been driven by where we are in health wise of getting together in groups on Sunday mornings and watching the service together as a little micro, this is my phrasing, but little micro groups of the communion of the saints. And it's actually building up new communities within within the church you know, this is kind of that suffering and sacrifice I talked about before, even though this is on the, you know, on a smaller end of the scale, Um, but we can't be together in church. Um, They're together in in a living room. And there's one gal I know who, she goes to this church and she was telling me about it. It's like every week we're trying to have people over for this. There have been a few people that live in our neighborhood that went to our church that I never would have seen or talked to on Sunday. And they're coming to our house because they live nearby and I'm getting to know them in new ways. So Mm -hmm. I think something along those lines Um, you know, again, the cynic in me is going to go, we are a forgetful people and give us a, give us a couple years and we'll be right back to where we were and we'll be taking church for granted and we'll be showing up late again, you know, waiting till the, you know, we're halfway through the worship songs to show up and bolting out the door as soon as the preaching is over. Um, but I hope that's not the case. I hope we can capture this. We miss being together sort of thing. Mm. And not out of a paranoid, the church or the state is trying to shut us down motive, but a I missed you guys. I love you. I want to be with you kind of thing.
0: How do you think discipleship is going to look post-COVID?
1: Well, I'm hoping that we'll see a more genuine discipleship in the sense, I hope that the isolation and the disconnectedness will drive us into more of that connectedness and community that, you know... I've talked to a number of introverts and said, you know, this is too much even for me. Um, (laughs) But like, so one of the, one of the commitments we've always had with our program is that we are committed uh, and convicted to do all of this in person. Uh, We don't, we've had people going, well, I live in California and we don't have a program by me. Can I do it, you know, by distance? And we always say no. And that's one reason why we grew. We were in DC for 35 years before we started growing outside DC. Um, and, you know, plant places like here in Chicago and Atlanta and other places because we're committed to the in-person stuff. Now, of course we have adjusted for the, for the circumstances, but we meet in person where we can, when we can, and, uh, we're going to go right back to that. And I feel like I'm going to have less of a hard time explaining why we do that now. And I hope that that is captured by churches where people will not forsake the gathering together and, 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 and lean more heavily into that and capitalize on that. So, but they got it, they, but they can't fall back on the same program mindsets, you know, hmm. and churches have been able to do some of their programs. They can continue their zoom stuff. I don't, I think they're going to see that doesn't have the same stickiness to it.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I don't think, I, I do wonder how many people though are going to come back right away. Cause I think some people are, have gotten comfortable. I mean, it doesn't take too long to develop yeah. a habit. And I can sleep in, I can tune it in, but it, to me, it's just a matter of time before you cool off. You know, it's just, to me, it's taking the log out of the fire uh, metaphor, real illustration, where you take it out and it's eventually going to cool. You need that body to keep you warm and to keep you spiritually hot. Uh, although with all the different te- technological advances and the fact that everything that we do now is tech. I mean, even the people that weren't tech, tech savvy have had to be or had to learn to be to to in order to survive whether it's zoom whether it's classroom stuff i mean even a lot of older people that have been tech resistant because they're completely isolated have had to learn mm-hmm. how to to do a lot of this stuff so it's it's become such a necessary i don't want to say an evil um but it's become even more integral to our society where i it, to to pull it away is is just not in the cards unless you're amish and even amish people are using Cell phones. <laughs> yeah. Um, having grown up in a community where there were a lot of Amish around us, um, you know, I, I see that and I'm still astonished when I see it. So I, I'm looking at discipleship now, going, all right, how do we change this? How do we what what is God trying to teach us through this? So th- that's one of the things that I haven't heard a lot of people talk about. When I, I'd seen a lot of pastors right when COVID hit, they're they're God is with it, God is with you, God is with you, you know, hold my hand basically. But I, I saw very few pastors or heard very few pastors say what they thought God was doing through COVID. What do you think or why do you think God has allowed? And again, I know you're not the Holy Spirit of God, but I'm sure you have a theory on this. Why do you think God has allowed COVID to happen? And this past year, uh, which was to be the vision 2020 year for so many people, uh, what, what do we do? Why, why do you think he's allowed that? I mean, what is he trying to accomplish in his church because of this? And I'm sure we won't know completely, but let's just take a, a swat at it.
1: Well, first let me applaud your theology in recognizing I'm not the Holy Spirit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we, we, <laughs> um okay. Another, we'll need another hour for this one. Um, <laughs> I one I I did hear a lot of this what you're saying, you know. Uh the digital is not going away. I'm like, "Oh, really?" I mean, we just better not supplant anything. I think you'll have I think the two extremes will be those who won't want to go back and then you'll have those who will just run to the church. Um mm-hmm. I think the church works with those those that um they have, you know. You work with with what you're given. Um and you start there and uh, pray if someone, you know, if you're, if you're a pastor in a church and there are people who haven't come back, um, you should be praying that God will convict them to bring them back and actually go get them, you know, go back, go out for that. The, the one sheep while the 99 are good, call up a call on them, get surround them with love and and accountability and that kind of stuff to call them back in. But what do I think the church God is doing in the church? You know, we both know this, that there's more going on in the church than just this COVID stuff. Um, we're watching every other day some major leader um, fall and be exposed to something, and it's not even the major leaders. There's some mid-level leaders that we're hearing about, and uh, sometimes not even uh, just church pastors, but church leaders that are in parachurch groups, like uh, the thing in Acts twenty-nine and some of these things. I don't. We don't need to name them all, um, unless you want to. We can get dirty, but uh, um, I'm seeing, I think, a winnowing. In what's happening, I think I feel like God's decentering us uh, in a, in a way from a lot of the I don't want to call traditions, but the culture and the ruts that we have found ourselves in. He has taken away the way we normally do church um, and making us wake up to this a little bit and have to you know we're we're missing it and when we 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 appreciate being in person more, but we're also looking at the celebrity leaders that we had put on pedestals. Uh, and i'm close to some of it um and they're they're crumbling and now that goes back to that guy you're podcasting he, all of a sudden you find out he's been embezzling or sleeping with people or whatever and your local pastor doesn't look so bad so i think god's i can't say for sure what he's doing but i, I to me it seems clear that he's taken up a he's taken the, the snow globe of the church and he's shaking it up a little bit and and doing a reset in some ways because it just seems like so many facets of 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 Christendom in the West as we know it as being challenged and undermined.
0: Mm. So how do we how do we respond to that then? I mean, what should we do just as our every regular day people trying to figure out what our place is? But how what is our involvement in church going forward, or what should we do to help these ministries continue to get back on track when things get back to so-called normal?
1: Yeah. Well, I think one of the first things we do is we fall flat on our faces and 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 cry out and i think there's 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 room for a lot of lament right now uh whether it is um falling to the altar of of politics um or celebrity or things like that i think there's there's room for a lot of lament and repentance right now um i think there's also um room for us to stop taking shots at each other online you know I, you know it doesn't mean you don't speak out uh, in convicted stances, especially you're, if you're involved in one of these sorts of things. Um, but I think we have to find ways to um, move towards restoration and repentance. And that doesn't mean, you know, so, you know, some of these celebrities have gone right back into leadership without m- what I think has been an much restoration or even acknowledgement of the problems. Um, I, I think it's going to drive us close. I hope it will drive us more into our, our local communities. You know this globalizing of 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 everything to include the church through you know um you know we all read i don't know, pick your favorite blog as well as podcast, but like reading a gospel coalition or desiring God or whatever you, it is you like there's a globalizing effect to that. I hope it drives us back into our local communities because the church should first and foremost be an impact right where they right where they're planted um and I think sometimes we've been so focused beyond the horizons um you know it doesn't mean sending all these people to some far off land in, 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 um, in, uh, like Africa or something like that as missionaries, but sometimes even like a suburban church, like we're going to go do stuff in the inner city. Well, there's a lot of need right where you're at. I hope it drives us more into our, our communities, but, um, I'm hoping that our church leaders have a good plan in all of this as well, and that we don't fall back just on business models and programs.
0: Well, I, I, I do think that every, people are, are trying to figure that out. I've seen so many different podcasts and, and zooms and, uh, presentations and saying, hey, this is what the church is going to look like, but the fact is is no one really does. Um, everyone is is trying to be a bit of a prophet, not that we can't try. I mean, we should all try. We need to to look at that and try to figure that out. but i I, I get increasingly frustrated because I see the church globally beginning to continue to rise. And the numbers continue to rise. And I'm going to have Todd Johnson, Lord willing, on the show, who's the director for the Center for the Study of Global Christianity. He's the world's leading expert of, on how many Christians there are in the world and where they're at. And it, it's pretty phenomenal. He was speaking at the Billy Graham Center last week. And, and um, I'm, I'm just excited to have him on the show. But I'm looking at Christianity in the West, specifically in America, and how it is shifting. And secularism has really changed the name of the game. Uh, I'm looking at an article right now that over the last two decades, Americans belonging to a church, synagogue, or mosque fell from 70% to 50%, Wow! and yet adults declaring no religious affiliation has more than doubled. Now, here's what this author goes on to say. He says, nature abhors a vacuum, and we would both agree with that, not only in the physical world, but also in the spiritual, and if people aren't getting meaning from their local religious community, they will seek it elsewhere. And increasingly, and here's the last part of this, but he says, Americans seek fulfillment in politics of all things. Now that's a startling statement to read. And that's in, uh, from USA Today. And that came out early this morning. Um, and uh, the guy who, we're recording this, and it's December 22nd, 2020. But the, the, the piece is an opinion contributor by a guy named John Gabriel. And the article title is, God Help Us, We're Losing Our Religion and Filling the Void with Politics. How do you, How do we as disciples differentiate? I mean, we're going again back to cop politics, and I hate to do yep. that, yep. but, but I, I'm seeing it just such as an ever-present thing within our discipleship mentality, and we are filling it with so many other things. How do we get people back to the Bible, back to the basics of the faith? And again, we were talking about biblical literacy earlier and talking about politics again, but I, I'm saying is I want to get people back to the Word of God. How do we get them to do that when they're
1: filling it with
0: politics?
1: Yeah, again, if I, yeah, again. If I had a wholly sufficient answer, I would have written a book on this. <laughs> um, uh, I, I think he's right on. Um, uh, Who are uh, whatever his name was, John Gabriel. His, John, John Gabriel. Gabriel. I have to go look that up. I think he's right because um, there was a, a, a little engagement on Twitter. And I don't normally speak up on Twitter. I'm more, uh, you know, I post a cool inspirational quote or something like that or share an article. I'm not I'm not in it for the fight because I just don't have the time or the energy or the bandwidth. But I finally did speak up on this one. Um, there was a pastor who lamented exactly what you have described. And after 12 years of being a pastor, he's basically uh, sad to see how his, mo- met not most, many of his, his, um, Parishioners or congregants um, are being influenced by this, and uh, a very well-known evangelical leader took a shot at him and said, "Well, if you're doing it, they've been doing this for 12 years. Perhaps there's uh, my this is my paraphrase some deficiency in your preaching." And I couldn't let this pastor take a shot like that. Pastors get beat mercilessly and it's like no no tell me about it i know <laughs> and this guy actually turns out to be the it, it just turned out he was the pastor of a friend of mine in North Carolina i'm like okay i'm i'm not this ain't happening and i said listen um pastors have a limited window while christians imbibe hours upon hours of internet social media talk radio and cable news it's oversimplifying to point it out as a deficiency in his preaching. That's all I said. I just, I just had to say that. Um, And that's the challenge is you get an hour on Sunday. And if they're active in the church, maybe you get some other, you know, a couple other moments with them throughout the week. Um, And then you're relying on them to soak in the word of God daily and to practice the spiritual disciplines and to be in and among the communion of saints and doing the work of discipleship. and uh, instead, they're getting, I mean, at, at one point I heard a statistic and I could be dead wrong, but it was something like 30 hours or more of news per week people are taking in now. And this is when they're driving and mm. the social media, it's a, it's a, like a, 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 an amalgamation of everything. And it's like, it's insane how much this stuff is we're taking in. And as one of my favorite guys that I studied at, at Trinity was Kevin Van Hooser. One of his things is spiritual formation. is not a question. The question is what's forming you. You're going mm. to be formed one way or the other. And Matt, the question is, what is it that's forming you? And if it's not the word of God, it's going to be something else, you know? And so let's go back to an innocent example, 10 or 15 years ago, you know, the, the, uh, the, the football widow, because the guys are all into Sundays and the, they're all into football all, all season long from, you know, September through January. And then all of a sudden they get their husband back. That's somewhat innocent, but it has an impact on who you are. Well, now we're in a politics and this is year-round and it's pushing us further and further apart and it's becoming irreconcilable differences. So I, I don't know that we can create constant programming to combat that, but I do think we need to create the structures in the church and in the community to challenge one another. And this is something I was gonna say earlier, and we kind of went in a different direction: was if we are in a community together, it's gonna to be a lot harder for me to write you off as 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 a neocon or a lib. You know, um, if I know who you are and I know how you are with your family and I, I've come to know your wife and your kids and just, man, I love Travis. He, I think his politics are whack, but whatever. It's harder for me just to write you off if we're in community like that. So I, I don't think we're going to be able to compete at that level of programming, but we have to find ways to build in those safety measures and those check valves in our community to call people out on those things.
0: You know, it's, it's interesting you bring that up, and I want to go back to this article for a second, um, and I, I just want to read this to you. Yeah, he please. says, we've replaced prayer with protest. He goes, I follow this stuff for a living, but let's be real. Politics is a grubby business in which immoral charlatans use fear and false promises to gain earthly power. They come back a few years later blaming the other side for their lack of results. In a republic, it's a necessary evil, but politics is a terrible religion. The divinization of democracy is sprouting up all over. Instead of spending Sunday at church, Republicans are flying flags in a Trump train. Instead of listening to a sermon on racial tolerance, Democrats are accosting diners at sidewalk cafes. Instead of resting on the Sabbath, we waste our weekends cursing strangers on social media. We've replaced prayer with protest, then wonder why everyone is so angry.
1: What do you think of that? I think he's spot on. I don't think I could add much to that. Um, I I think we have supplanted our religion often. in case, this is the problem I think in the United States here, because we have been, I'm not, I've got some problems with saying we're a Christian nation. And I think it, I think it requires nuance and explanation yeah, and unpacking course. to say something like that. So, um, but just for shorthand, let's just say we've been such a Christian nation that we have confused our citizenship. And the question I like to ask people is, are you an American Christian or are you a Christian American? Of course. Yeah. Which one modifies which? And I think we're at a point where the two—if we were to build a Venn diagram—the overlap is just so powerful and uh, and and confusing. We can't untangle these things, and so we've confused our faith with our politics. Whereas in the past, it was a little bit clearer. And if I challenged you on some political position years ago. I could appeal to reason, scripture, whatever, and you didn't take it as an attack. Now, if I challenge you, it's an assault on your very faith. And who wouldn't stand up for their faith? Because that should be core to who you are. And the irony is, I feel like there's a lot of these cultural Christians who, who really haven't, you know, the penny hasn't dropped with them, but it's become bound up with this political identity that you're going to fight for prayer in schools, even though you're not praying at home, you know, when you're by yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but, so then any assault or an assault, any criticism would be seen as an assault or an attack on your faith and on who you are. I think he's right
0: yeah I, I agree, I do too. Um, and i i uh he he one of the things he mentions here he says, barring a new great awakening, the trend towards secular secularism is likely to continue. And as we've seen, this doesn't mean we'll see a growing emphasis on reason and scientific materialism. It just means new religions unmoored from tradition, humility, and grace. And then he says in the next sentence, he says, perhaps political religion isn't that new after all. The worship of power has been with us since the garden has remained and has remained just as destructive. Uh. And yet, yet it's easy to, to say politics is evil, but yet at the same time, you see the as Christians, we are within a society where the purpose of government is to restrain the evil and to enable the good. And we within a democratic republic have the ability to speak out on these issues in order to preserve life or, or one aspect of life. But yet I think we're seeing a massive shift and it's still trying to figure out what our involvement is within a faith. Now I agree totally and wholeheartedly that our politics, I mean, protest has replaced prayer and you get the people where you have the gun violence occur and people are like, well, we'll pray for them. And you have people respond and say, I'm tired of praying. It's time to do. And I I, I think sometimes we we have the tendency to think in these either or categories. Yes, we are to pray. We're always to pray. God calls us to pray and prayer is a work, but prayer should lead to action. Wouldn't you agree with that?
1: I, I, yes, I do. I do. I agree with that. I think uh, you can... It's the old mantra, you can fall off either side of the horse. You know, um, I think one of the problems in anything is a matter of emphasis and uh, over-focusing on one side of things to the neglect of the other. Um, mm-hmm. But Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the Christian life is one of poison balance, and we've got to get it right. And I don't think you're just called to sit back there. Um, you know, Not everyone is supposed to be sort of a George Mueller and sit back and pray and let things come. That may be a specific rare calling, most of us are called to some combination thereof. So I, I agree with that.
0: Yeah, because I think my my contention is is that is the more you pray about something, the more that your will is shaped into the will of God and that makes you yep. want to act. And you find yourself saying, The, you know, our Father may may it be in heaven as it is on earth, basically. And it makes me want to bend to act to that that specific issue, but I think people would say, "Well, that's what protest is." And then I stop and I go, "Well, yes, but we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, powers, and authorities in the heavenly realms. So how do we juxtapose those against one another?" And that's I think the constant tension because you can pray all day, but if you're not the William Wilberforce who's out act there actually trying to make a difference, then then it's not, I don't want to say it's for naught, but it could be that the very prayers that you have are helping that person become that to make that difference. And I think that's where we get confused is we want to do it in either or. There's the prayer or there's the protest mm-hmm. and you don't see the two as a, a, a complementary thing. Um, and I think that's where we get into danger is we want to separate those categories. And I don't think that's what God has called us to do. I think that the two are go hand in hand. I mean, do you think do you think that's true or no?
1: No, I think, that, I think that's right. I think um, the level of activity and things like that uh, are going to be uh, driven by your specific calling. Uh, not everyone is going to be a Bonhoeffer or a Wilberforce or a Martin Luther King, but we certainly ought to be willing to go in that route and be contributing to that in some way. You know, um, you know maybe participating in a protest is something you do. You know, you should be praying about it as well. I mean, I do like what uh, Oswald Chambers once said is prayer is in preparation for the work. Prayer is the work. You got to start with that, but you can't finish there. Um, We're not called to be passive and standing by. Uh, And I'm going to butcher it, but there was a quote uh, by Bonhoeffer I read recently that, you know, we're not called just to sit by and passively wait. We are called to get into action and obey. Um, and that is something is, uh, you know, we need to be obedient to that calling. Um, and there are so many problems in the world out there. You can't answer them all. There's another Oswald Chambers that, you know, the need is not the call. You do got to go to where you're called, but you're also supposed to go to where you're called. Uh, you're not supposed to just sit there in in your prayer closet and, and pray nonstop and do nothing. Else. So I'm rambling on that, but that's a long way of no, saying, yes, I agree. Good.
0: Well, uh, KJ, just to to help people out here to finish this off, I mean, you're being involved with the CS Lewis Institute. Um, what then? Are, 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 where are these programs at? Because I, mean, I think there are some people saying, "Hey, I wanna I wanna get involved in something like this." Yeah. Where, where are these located? The the CS Lewis Institute. You mentioned that it started in DC. You're in Chicago, and I think you mentioned there's a few more in different cities. What cities across yeah. the United States are they available?
1: Yeah, well, and I was going to jokingly say, you know, the answer to the problems are participate in one of our programs, Um, but... um,
0: (laughs) Especially since we just went off on programs. (laughs) That's
1: exactly right. Um, Think of it this way, though. The the Institute... Oh, it's funny. We are trying to be a center of excellence on discipleship. And so, um, I mean, in our internal... I read one of our internal philosophy documents, a draft that was being put together years ago, uh, was that we consider ourselves a servant to the church. The idea is to build the church up. And we do that both at the corporate individual level. And um, so these programs, the key one being the fellows programs, one year starting in January, we'll start taking applications. It's a tuition free program. So, I mean, there's not many of those out there. Um, and then the program starts in June and it runs June to June and we are in, uh, 15 cities now. So I won't get them all off right now. Uh, I'm sure I'll leave a couple out, but the primary cities we're in, we're in Dallas, we're in Chicago, we're in Atlanta, we're in DC. Um, We're in Seattle. We Mm. are in Cincinnati. We are in Youngstown, Ohio. We're in um, right near Harrisburg, PA. We call it central central Pennsylvania. We're in Toronto. We're in Belfast, Northern Ireland. Um, We're in Naples, Florida, uh, Greenville, South Carolina, Charlotte, North Carolina. So go to our website. You'll see the whole listing. I know I've left a couple off there, but the main thing that we're trying to do is build people up in Christ and equip them to go back into the church. So pastors, if you're listening, this is a program where in some cities, uh, pastors have taken sort of, the, I'll call it the upper crust or the upper tier of those people who are growing and more mature and healthy, but you don't have time to tend to them. Send them in the program. They get built up. It's mere Christianity level of theology. You can build uh, your denominational distinctives on top of that. And they're better equipped to help you do the work of ministry in the church. And you've, if nothing else, you've got another small group leader. Or you've potentially got someone who can be a good elder. There there was one church in uh, in Ohio, I know, that was uh, sending anybody that came up to be an elder or deacon, they put them through the fellows program first, because it's you're just outsourcing a little bit of this stuff, and you can build on it. So that's just one way to build up your church. I know my vision in Chicago is that every Bible-preaching church has two or three fellows in it, so we can continue to be a resource to the church.
0: Is this uh, for men and women, or just for men, men or just for Men women and women. It, it's, okay. yeah, it's men
1: and women, so... Yes. It's, uh, we, we keep the settings, you know, men, disciple men, women, disciple women, but there are some mixed settings. Like when we listen to a lecture, like uh, I mentioned, Kevin Van Hooser, he comes in and teaches for us every year in Chicago. We all sit together in that, but we do our small groups and our mentoring gender specific. Call it a class, every class. Um, it depends on the city, you know, Seattle, um, is a tougher city for Christians. So finding Christians in Seattle is harder. So their class is a little smaller. Here in Chicago, we've been in the neighborhood of 20 to 25 this year. We're running a class of almost 40. Um, oh. DC, they've been at it longer. They have larger classes. So it, it's different from year to year. We're not, this is the beauty is we're not numbers driven. Uh, we have a little bit of a luxury not being a formal church that we can run a class large or small and it's very relational so it's a program but it's it's not the program it's the people and the relationships that you're you're uh, and the conditions we set
0: okay and then how do people find you online like first of all how do they find the cs lewis institute i mean they just i'm assuming google cs lewis institute but what's your website
1: yeah it's it's, it's one long word www.cslewisinstitute.org And then you can find all the links to the fellows program and you can see all the cities listed. If folks want to find me, they can find me on Twitter. I'm at uh, KJ7562. Um, and they can connect with me that way. Or if they go on our website, my email and uh, on the Chicago page, there's my email and contact information. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I've had a lot of fun. This has been great. I looked up, it was 14 minutes and now it's uh, a couple hours.
0: Yeah, which is fine by me. I love this stuff. I love getting into good discussions and digging deep onto certain issues and picking people's brains and excited what you're doing at the C.S. Lewis Institute and uh look for I I want to have you back on the show. Can you come back on the show?
1: I would love to do it, and I've been listening to you, so I was I was excited about the um you know the fast five. I was wondering what you were gonna ask me. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I'm trying to change that up a little bit. We'll see what happens. But uh, sometimes those can take some pretty gruesome turns. (laughs) (laughs) But it's fun. You know, like you said, discipleship's all of life. And I want people to see the good and the bad, to get to know who we are and show what it means to be a real follower of Jesus. Amen to that.
1: This is fun. Thanks for having me, Travis.
0: Hey, not a problem, KJ. And uh, we'll, we'll talk to you soon. Talk to you later, okay? Blessings, brother. That was my conversation with my friend KJ. I trust that you were blessed because of it and your faith was watered. Our goal in these conversations is to help you grow in your understanding and the depth of your relationship with Jesus. The Bible says that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Each generation, each individual has to know how to do that. As we wrestle with questions and things that we're confronted with on a daily basis that cause us to wonder what we are to do next. And it helps us continually abide in Christ and learn what it means to be a follower of Him because we know that we are dependent upon Him and we need His guidance as our world continues to change each and every day. I do hope that your faith was watered, and if you want to be watered even further, go back and listen to some of our other conversations, because that will help you grow in your relationship and your understanding of Jesus. Again, I want to thank KJ for coming on the show. It was a delight to be able to talk with him and grow in my understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I trust that you benefited from our discussion as well. And I also wanted to let you know that this episode wouldn't be possible if it wasn't for our sponsor, Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate. If you're looking to buy or sell a home in the Chicagoland area, then she is the woman that you need to call. She comes with years of experience and loves people. She's attentive to your style and your specific needs. And I I know that she does this because I am one of her clients. She is my agent. She helped us in ways that are just unbelievable. And I'm very grateful to all that she did for us. And I know that she can do the same for you as well because she sits with you, learns what you're looking for, and then matches you with the best options that are right for you. So I would recommend giving her a call or text today at 630-201-4664. that is 630-201-4664. And then, once you get a hold of her, tell her that Travis sent you. Well, that's it for today, everybody. If this has helped you so that you can saturate your world, then hit that subscribe button, leave us a review, interact with us on our social media pages, and share this episode with other people. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollo Watered. Stay watered everybody.